traveling through another dimension. Another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. But of mind. A journey into a wondrous land. land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Tonight on the Twilight Zone podcast, from the very depths of my tortured soul, I have conjured up a friend to join me on the show to discuss episodes five and six of season two of the new Twilight Zone. It's my good friend, Paul Gallagher. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing, Tom? It's great to be here. Or great to return, I should say, right? We've, we've, we have been here a couple times. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you were here for the last season with me on an episode, and mm-hmm. I had the good fortune to meet you in Binghamton last year. And what a great time that was, right? It was, and I was really hoping that, what is this, the July 8th? Yeah. I, I was hoping that by now we'd be, uh, if not having the next Sterling Fest, uh, at least on the uh, on the cusp of it. It's been disappointing, but... We'll just have to muddle through and meet when we can. So Yeah, fingers crossed that all this, you know, gets to a a level where we can do things like that next year, I hope. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. So Paul, I mean, a lot of people will know you straight out the box, but any new listeners who might not have encountered you before, um, tell us about what you do, your little corner of the Twilight Zone. My little corner um is is uh primarily on Twitter. Mm-hmm which is how I got to meet you. In fact, one of the reasons why it's such a, uh, a thrill really to be on your show is because I feel like what's gotten to be a very crowded field, at least in terms of online fanning, mm-hmm. uh, you and I go back 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it was 2010 when I just on a whim launched my, my Twitter page, which I just called the, the handle for it is just the night gallery mm-hmm. because initially I was only going to be covering night gallery. And then I started doing all of Sterling stuff and I looked around and there really was not much of anything out there. There was not a huge Facebook. Uh, this was the beginning of a lot of that stuff. And one of the very few things I found was some guy named Tom Elliott who was doing, <laughs> doing a podcast about twilight zone and the guy named Chris Brown, your friend who was doing the night gallery podcast. And, uh, so, so that's primarily, so that's really still my bread and butter every day, putting up quotes and facts from twilight zone, night gallery, and just anything Serling had to do with his movies, his other projects. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I also, a few years back created a Facebook page, which I just call shadow and substance. Mm -hmm. And that's also the name of my blog, which I launched in 2013. So that's that's where I am, weekly blogging and yeah. tweeting every day. To uh, and it's nice; it's grown uh, quite a bit over the years, up to about thirty-one thousand now. So on Twitter, so it's one of the, those kind of linchpins of the online Twilight Zone rod sailing world. And I'm always happy to dive into it. Whether it's, I mean, I don't really go on Twitter that much anymore, um, but I mm-hmm. always kind of check in occasionally. And it's always good to to check out your your feed. Now, one thing that I did notice on your feed this year, when we were starting to come into season two, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there was a slight, maybe a little edge of, you know what, I'm I'm not too sure this is going to be for me. Am I wrong in that? I mean, was there a slight bit of trepidation there going in? There there will. I'll, I'll freely admit that. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Some of that may have been because if you go back uh, early 2019, when we first heard about this, well, I mean, probably heard about it in 2018, but mm-hmm. when it was getting ready to launch, I encountered, as, I, as I'm sure you have, a lot of fans of the original show who were very unsure, very skeptical, and many who sight unseen were ready to say no way, no how, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they weren't even going to give it a chance. And I was somebody who from the very start was saying, Hey, look, I know it's a tall order. Nobody can do what Rod Serling did, but come on, let's give it a chance. And I was very much the one who was beating back. I mean, in my court, I don't mean I was the only one. I know mm-hmm. you were too and other people, I, but I was saying, Hey, come on guys, let's give it a chance. I had seen get out by Jordan Peele. I was very impressed with it. I thought it was a great suspenseful film. I really enjoyed it. And, and then we started watching the first season. Now I definitely found some episodes, especially early on that I did like, and there were elements of the show that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't mean that I was one of those people that was like, ah, oh, this is junk. No, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that wasn't the case, but I will admit. So I felt a little worried. I thought, well, if I go out at the, before season two has come out and I start beating the drums and saying, this is going to be great. Uh, maybe I better kind of wait and see. So yeah. that's really why I sounded that way, but I'm still very supportive and I never discouraged anybody mm-hmm. from checking it out. If I can just segue into saying that happily, I I've watched so far eight of the 10 episodes mm-hmm. and by and large, I, I feel much happier with it. Perhaps you do too. I generally enjoyed the first season. It's funny. I remember last time we spoke and I think it was like episode three or something. Uh, uh, We talked about a traveler, which was episode four. Four. Okay, cool. And I mean, the noise of it last year, the online noise, it it was kind of deafening. I didn't really enjoy covering the season that much or I did at the beginning, but then it just became this noise from all sides, you know, I find, I think it's a very divisive season. Um, yeah. Personally, I'm on the side of like, I like it, but it's like a season of episodes with the weight of he's alive or I'm the night yes. calling me black. And I love those episodes. I love sailing with the gloves off, but yeah. you don't want 10 of those in a row almost. Exactly. And that's one of the things I would say to people when I said something, because I did write initially, I was going to cover them all post episode by episode. And about halfway through, I stopped doing that. And then I finally came back a couple mm-hmm. months later last year and I did kind of a wrap up and I was explaining that I thought, you know, that, yeah, I think it's legitimate to say that it was a bit message heavy. And, uh, but people would say, but wait a minute, Serling had messages. And I said, absolutely. He did. I'm not criticizing it for doing that. I said, but think about this. Take something like Death's Head Revisited. Brilliant episode. Okay, now imagine Death's Head Revisited every week. Mm -hmm. That's a bit much. I mean, if you look at the original Twilight Zone, you had episodes that, and you and I were talking about this a little little earlier, about how uh, there was this great variety in tone, which I think was part of the reason that Serling liked the whole Twilight Zone concept. Yeah. Yes, he would smuggle commentary in in very clever ways, and thank heavens that he did. But he also had 
sweet episodes like one for the angels Mm -hmm. um he had ones that were purely scary like the dummy you know there was this uh, great variety and so one of my concerns with season one was that it was pretty much like heavy message heavy message heavy message boom 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 Mm -hmm. almost every time out and i would feel the same i would have the same criticism if they were all jokey episodes you know I would say, come on, guys, let's have a little gravitas, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So coming into season two, then you're only um, waiting to see the last two. But in our coverage here, we are on five and six. So we've already covered one to four. So say what you like. What do you think of those episodes? You can go episode by episode if you want or just give an overview entirely up to you, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Uh, No, on balance, I I, I really I I was happy with the early ones coming into it. And it's funny because, of course, you know, at the same time, you're, you're hearing some general comments. Mm. And, and I thought to myself, I'm watching one, two, you know, which was, you know, because we started off with... Um, uh, meet Me in the Middle. Right. Meet Me in the Middle started. And uh, I thought, great premise. I really like that one. Uh, because th- that was a perfect example of where you are drawn right in. It's an intriguing premise. You're trying to guess it all the way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets to the end, and it gives you that flip. Structure-wise, that had a very Twilight Zone, original Twilight Zone feel to it. Mm-hmm. And downtime, I thought, had a great concept as well. So it was like I'm watching that. I'm watching, uh, and then and then we had um, what was the third one? I know the fourth one's Ovation. Uh, the Who of You. The Who of You, yes, mm-hmm. right. So uh, and I like that one as well, and. And so, and then at the same time, I'm hearing people. So I'm getting up to episodes five and six, and I'm thinking, I need to talk. This is the ones I'm going to be talking about with Tom. And I'm hearing people say, oh, yeah, it was great in the beginning, but then the, the season about halfway through falls apart. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. The ones I'm going to be talking about with Tom are going to be the best. But happily, that, that's not the case. Uh, of the two that we're talking about today, I was very happy with one. Mm-hmm. And just, a little disappointed with the second one, but mostly by comparison, but we can get into that. So I have to admit, I, uh, the first episodes leading up until now, I've been, I've been very happy with it. I feel like it's been, uh, and maybe this is as, as a result of responding to some of the criticism. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's, they've shortened the run because one of, one of the things that a lot of people pointed out, and I think quite fairly was that some of the run times were a bit long. Mm. I still think they could be more concise but they did trim them down, um, and I think that helps. So I've been pleased with it. So why don't we get into our first story then, Paul? It's called Among the Untrodden. It's written by Heather Ann Campbell, who was a writer last year as well, and directed by Tyresha Poe. This one is set in a girl's school, and I think I saw a couple of girls wearing this school uniform in the episode of Who of You, you know, when he first changes... Uh, bodies with the the woman at the beginning or is it the cop and they're walking out and you see a couple of girls in school uniform and i think it's one of the little links they've put in there so that's one thing i would certainly give them uh, credit for by the way mm-hmm. that's true of both seasons they've done a very nice job of having these little visual callbacks yeah uh and almost making it feel more like a unified world that's right that's right i do love those little nods i think in season one We were thinking it was going to build to like, is there going to be an alien invasion or something in the last episode? Or 
and right. it just totally flipped everything on its head and <laughs> so now i think they're just there for the for you know a bit of enjoyment uh which and i do enjoy it i like those little links there yeah and i, and I also enjoyed jordan peele sitting at a desk was he sitting at the desk at the end or the beginning i can't remember but at the beginning he's sitting at a desk that's in right. the back yeah. and at the end he's standing near the front by the blackboard i do yeah. love the interactivity of it so have you enjoyed uh, jordan peele's narrations this year i have yeah it's uh because one of my favorite things and i know this is true for a lot of fans and perhaps you as well one of my favorite types of introductions when you have serling are the ones where he's actually in the scene you know not just the whip pan uh -huh. where you know that it was filmed another time but he actually steps into the scene like when you see Agnes Moorhead through the window of her home and the invaders, yeah. Serling is standing right outside. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's very cool. Yeah. And so I've enjoyed the way they've done that with Jordan this year. Our, our setup is this. We have a young lady, Irene, and she is coming to this school and she comes into class and introduces herself. And uh, we have a, a group of girls in the class who I suppose are the typical as they are portrayed in things like mean girls you know the, the kind of a little bitchy and very clicky and right. not really welcoming of someone coming into their their class so that's our setup so let's just get into it what are your thoughts on the story paul it was very interesting to go back and watch it again once you are aware of the of the twist mm -hmm. the setup I, I feel like that's something that even though we've seen this kind of thing before, it's a very tried and true formula. And I feel like right away, pre-twist, uh, your heart just goes right out to Irene mm -hmm. and you see her come in and she's got the, uh, you know, the skin doesn't look perfect and the hair's a little stringy, mm -hmm. but she's very endearing. And right away, you feel very protective of her and you hate the fact that these mean girls are picking on her yeah. immediately they give her no time at all before they're already doing this mm -hmm. and the other thing that i liked and again i'm trying to think of my reaction prior to the reveal i felt like this was going to be a story about uh, madison's redemption mm. because you could tell that there was a part of her that liked irene uh in spite of the way her friends were acting yeah, yeah. But I feel like that kind of story, this poor fish out of water being picked on, mm -hmm. you start thinking to yourself, okay, well, what's going to happen here? You know, there's a couple different ways. Again, I'm talking pre-twist here, where this could go. Is this going to be a story of Madison's redemption? Is it going to be just a revenge story? Yeah. Is, is it going to be Carrie? You know, is like, yeah. is Irene right. going to, because it suggests at the beginning, and it's all misdirection. Because when Madison throws the pencil at her, you see it on the floor, don't you? And then you see it turn to dust. So you think, yes, okay, there's something about Irene. She's got she's got some sort of power and so on. And you're absolutely right. I think the actress, Sophia Macy, done a really nice job. She was so endearing. And, and, and one of the things that was remarkable, really, one of the reasons that you can't really, really like her, I think, is you notice how no matter how, and of course, once you know the twist, it really makes sense. Mm. But even before then, you notice how no matter how abusive Madison is, Irene keeps being nice to her. Yeah. You know, you would think 
in normal life, if you tried to be a friend to somebody and that person kept calling you names and saying abusive things, you would sooner or later, and probably sooner, (laughs) Mm -hmm. finally just say, fine, the hell with you, and storm off and get angry. But Irene never does that. She keeps persisting. No, Madison, you're special. You've got a gift. You've got powers. Why do you deny this? And that makes her even more appealing because you're like, wow, she's got the patience of a saint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Once the reveal comes. You <laughs> I, I just think that actress, she she really brought that. You could see it all going on under the surface. She just wants to be liked. She just wants to, you know, be in with a group. The way she says, oh, I, I want to do my project about smoking pot, you know, and, yeah. and she's just like. <laughs> and cool stuff like that, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I thought she'd done a great job and she's pretty much unknown. I've been looking up her IMDb and stuff. These two leads are quite young in their careers, which is nice that they've given them this platform. Yes. So the pencil goes on the floor. I mean, we will get to the twist in a while, but throughout it, because I always felt it was Irene pretty much, you know, once things started going, I always felt, oh, it's Irene giving Madison the power. Obviously, yes. I was wrong in the end, but right. you think you've got the twist figured out all the way through it, don't you? Right. So when you get toward the end and Madison is saying, it was you all along, you were always there mm-hmm. when I use the power and they're doing the flashbacks and flashback is usually a sign of you are now learning the truth about something. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you're, you're right, it did seem, and and that alone, I mean, if they had left it there, that would have been a pretty cool uh, story, but I feel like it got even better once we know. It must be so hard to fool an audience these days, mustn't it? And I yeah. think that's why they've really got to work. If you're going to do the twist, you've got to be really smart about it. So I suppose having an audience think they figured out the twist halfway through already right. is, a, is a pretty good way to do it, isn't it? Yeah. And, and actually, that's one of the reasons why I've said something about the length. It isn't just a question of being an impatient viewer mm-hmm. or thinking that, oh, well, because the original Twilight Zone was 25 minutes or less, you've got to do that. It's honestly because the longer the story and the original producer of the first three seasons of the original Twilight Zone, Buck Halton, even said this, that if you have half an hour or close to that, you can, uh, you know, you have your setup, the story develops and then you have your twist. Mm-hmm. The longer it takes to get to the twist when you have an audience that is expecting one, the more people are going to be like, well, maybe it's this, well, maybe it's that, you know, and their minds are constantly churning. I mean, I can't help but feel that way when I watch an episode of this because I'm like, okay, what's going to happen? What are they going to do? You know, you're like on your guard. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm sure that it is, you know, I mean, you figure that if you watch the original Twilight Zones, it was like setup and twist. But these days, because we've so to speak, seen it all, it's like you get to the end of anything, whether it's a movie or a TV show, and it's like, and it was this. Actually, I'm kidding. It was this, or maybe it was this. (laughs) And I find myself looking at the clock because, not because I'm impatient, but because I'm like, wait a minute, is it close enough to the end for this to really be the twist? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or is this the pre-twist twist? twist? (laughs) I'm going through season four for the first time, and I know it's quite maligned but anyone out there i'm talking about the original show but you know what i'm enjoying it and i get that 
it's probably easier to pull the wool over people's eyes with that shorter running length. But when you look at the Twilight Zone as a whole, it's just a different flavor of Twilight Zone, you know? It is. And I quite enjoy that because, you know, even Rod at that point, you know, season four, season five, it, it's documented that he was starting to run out of ideas a bit. He'd kind of been so prolific in it. Um, right. So I, I think just to have a little bit of a different shape to it is pretty cool. And maybe that's the way to go with this one, because I think we have at least three half hour episodes in this season. And then some are like a bit longer and then some are like 50 minutes. So maybe that's the way to go, you know, just just let the story dictate it rather than fill a runtime, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm completely I'm I'm fine with it doing that, mm-hmm. because if you have a dictated runtime, there are going to be episodes, half hour episodes that feel rushed, and there are going to be hour long episodes that feel padded. Uh-huh. Whereas if you have the freedom to say, OK, this is going to be a 37 minute episode because that's how long it takes. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with that. It's just always the editor side of me that's always like, <laughs> how concise can we make this? You know, within reason, I mean. So. I think one of the joys of um, watching an episode twice, because I have unfortunately rushed through them. I just didn't want to be spoiled, but that's of course another story. But um, is once you know the twist, kind of going back and looking at those clues that were throughout it, is there anything you noticed throughout the run of it? Yeah, it, especially when I watched uh, uh, Among the Untrodden again. I keep wanting to say downtrodden. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, I noticed in the beginning, we see Madison, it opens with her, which is kind of interesting because if this had been a standard picked on girl story, gets her comeuppance, yeah. not comeuppance, but her, her justice or her revenge, you would think that our focus would have been on Irene, but it doesn't. It starts on Madison. Mm-hmm. But that makes sense at the end because once we know the twist, we know it's all about Madison. This is her struggling with the fact that she is, for whatever reason, in this queen bee role. Uh-huh. And, and now she wants to unleash this other side of her, this side that her clique would denounce as being a nerdy side. Mm-hmm. So she has to, as somebody who, and that's, here's the, the fifth dimension element of it, has these powers, uh, she has to explore these, this side of her very carefully by creating this alter ego. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it, because it starts with her. We see her putting on makeup, which suggests deception. And interestingly, it keeps cutting to objects that are in her room. And she has a typewriter, Uh somebody who creates stories. And it's actually an old-fashioned typewriter, too. Mm -hmm. And she has quill pens as well. And then later, I noticed when Irene is correcting the tests from her... um, psychic quiz that she gave the class she's making her marks with a quill pen nicely spotted i didn't get that i thought it was a great touch you know to do something like that and then and then we first see irene from the back which sort of suggests to me at least that it's like she's not she's kind of a blank slate Mm -hmm. that madison is filling in you know as she as she comes in so Yeah. yeah and i thought it was interesting you know there's I looked up the poem because you actually see the poem that's, you hear the teacher talking about Wordsworth, the poem William Wordsworth. I'm sure Henry Bemis would know all about (laughs) William Wordsworth. 
uh, there's a, a poem that Wordsworth wrote called She Dwelt Among the Untrodden Ways. And it's actually written out on the blackboard as Jordan Peele gives his final ah. narration. It's interesting to hear some of the things that the teacher is saying. A lot of times, some of this dialogue that we hear as background, it sounds like it's just throwaway mm. stuff. But I was noticing, I just jotted down a couple of things. The teacher says something about Wordsworth and how, quote, poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Wow. Okay. And I was thinking about how this, this episode, so much of it concerns what can definitely be called powerful feelings on Madison's part. And it's just, it's just, it's just really interesting. I feel like, you know, you can really see Madison's at war with herself and she's often photographed away from the girls, even though she's part of the clique not, she's not just part of the clique, but she's like, as I said, the queen bee. Yeah. And yet she's always standing apart from them in some respect. She's at the back of the classroom in the beginning. She's close to the door and away from them when Irene comes to the door to tell her about her test. Mm -hmm. And then when they're on the roof, Madison is the only one on the other side of the railing yeah. with Irene. So I don't, I don't think any of that was was an accident. You know what? I think you're right. And I think I'm going to notice this stuff even more now you've said it. Uh, a lot of times when there's whenever there's a musical number, say, as a character is, is doing something, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to assume, well, they just pulled something off the shelf, something that sounded cool. And I'm sure that that's true some of the times. But I noticed that that first song when... Irene is gathering things for when they're going to have their psychic sessions, I guess you could say, down in this mysteriously abandoned bathroom, <laughs> <laughs> which is so covered with graffiti. You know, you just yeah. can't get over the fact that they've got this place. And th there's this one moment as she's going, crossing things off the mirror, the top of the mirror, it has written, it says, fake bitch. And I can't help but wonder if that's a, kind of a, an in-joke about the fact mm. that Irene isn't real. That's a good point. Or it could mean a reference to Madison, uh, you know, that she is is being fake. She's uh -huh. pretending, you know, so. But but the music that I mentioned, I noticed it was this song by a group called Rose of the West, and it's called Roads, and the lyrics go, where do we go, what do we do, away from the place we know to somewhere we don't. And if we make a wrong turn, if we take the long way, I swear it's okay. And I think this stood out to me because for whatever reason, I tend to, even though I hear perfectly well, I just have a tendency to leave captions on with stuff. Okay. And very often when songs come on, the lyrics are printed on the page or page, the screen. I thought, oh, they did not pick this song at random or because it sounded <laughs> cool. Yeah. They're telling us something, you know. It's like telling Madison, you know, it's okay to go away from the place you know uh -huh. to a place you don't. And if you make a wrong turn, it's going to be okay. And as we see at the end, it is okay because he's just going to make a new friend. <laughs> Let's talk about this end and then. I was probably like a lot of people sitting there happily content that I've guessed the end of this one. You know, Irene yeah. is, is feeding these powers to Madison somehow. And they even yeah. have a confrontation where Madison says, this is the case. It turns out, though, that they'd set up this thing throughout that when Madison creates an object, once it's run its course, it will disappear. The pencil at the right. beginning, the key to the um, to the balcony. And then when she hugs Irene at the end, Irene disappears. So what do you think this episode is telling us, Paul? What, what do you take from it? I think and one of the reasons that it may, I feel like it's very timely is because 
it's never been easy to be yourself, Mm -hmm. which is a message that comes through very strongly in the original Twilight Zone. And I feel like these days, the pressure to conform Mm -hmm. feels like Mm -hmm. it's increased exponentially Uh because we Uh have more interconnectedness and therefore more avenues for people to put us in those boxes and madison is in a box and she doesn't want to be in it but she's afraid to break out she wants to be quote cool yeah quote normal and as anybody who's a fan of the original twilight zone knows what is normal is not necessarily right or good Mm -hmm. so i feel like this is telling us that we really need to be appreciative of the fact that people are not always, you know, that sometimes people who appear to be one thing are yearning to be another, but they feel imprisoned. You know, Madison is in a prison, really, and she's trying to break out of it. And even for someone like her, who's clearly at the top of the social chain, it's almost impossible for her to do it. That's it. She's she's kind of in that ivory tower now. And I think what I liked about it is we've all seen Irene's story, you know, so many times, haven't we? We've seen, yeah. I mean, the original show had its Mr. Beavis. We had Cavender is coming for better yeah. or worse. <laughs> Agnes Grepp. <laughs> yeah. So we, we've seen Irene's story. And, and I think this was a nice twist on whatever your, in quotation, status is, your position You know, we all create these little prisons for ourselves. And you're right, especially at the moment. So it's a a nice twist on on all of that stuff. Is the writer presenting Madison as a sympathetic character? Yes and no. I don't think it makes excuses for her because at the end of the day, she's she's created her own destiny here. She's put herself there. She She can be a nicer person. She can be a friendlier person whenever she wants to, but she just can't move out of this this kind of box she's put herself into. So there's a lot to think about with this ending, and I, and I really like it. Yeah, I do too. And I, I feel like it, like I said, it's a rem- in, in some ways, we're naturally going to be sympathetic to the picked on. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea of basically saying, it's easy to vilify those who, who do the bullying but did you ever think that there could be some among them who aren't happy and maybe yeah. deeply unhappy and want to change, but feel the pressure of the crowd to keep conforming mm-hmm. to that role? Um, and so I like it whenever anything kind of makes me think in that way. So I, I, I really like it. I, I rated this one very highly. So Our stats man, Harold Clark, is keeping tabs on these things, Paul. Now, I don't normally do marks out of 10 or anything like that, but... Uh, on these ones, uh, we are just so Harold can keep track on things. So, if you had to give it a mark out of ten, what would you say? Oh, I feel like this one is. Oh, it's a good nine. I would say I would rate this one very highly. Excellent, excellent. I think for me, in my eyes, a five is like it's okay. You know, right. a ten is like it's a classic. Seven or eight. That's a solid episode that I, I enjoy. Absolutely, yeah. So I'm going to go with a seven on this because okay. I like it, uh-huh. but there's episodes in the season that I like a lot more. Right. So I think, you know, seven is a very respectable. Oh, I agree. I almost said an eight because it's right kind of on that cusp. Mm-hmm. And I have gone on to see a couple more episodes 
that I like as much, if not better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like a small town very, very much. Um, that that one was very impressive. A human face was also one that I, I found very interesting. But but because with this one, I kept thinking, okay, well, uh, what's going to keep me from giving it the highest score? I need to have some negatives to say about it. You know, <laughs> it's interesting because one of the things that I I had said before was that it's a shame that the that the series isn't even though it's not a big deal. I don't know why it has to be quite so R-rated with the language. Mm-hmm. On balance, the season, just as the run times have gotten shorter, it's actually gotten better with the language. But this one has a lot. <laughs> and I suppose that's the consequence of it being set in this kind of tough school atmosphere. Yeah. Um, but I, so I can't, yeah, no, I really liked it. I would say at least an eight or a nine. I, I think for me, I thought the ending what it's saying was very twilight zone yes throughout the runtime of it i'm not sure it felt very twilight zone to me it's almost like that came at the end but like the the body of the episode and maybe that's something that will come on repeat viewings but it it never felt as twilight zone as some of them but by the end it got there with what it was saying so that's fine so maybe that's why I kind of took a mark or two off it, but still a solid, good, enjoyable episode. So our next story is called Eight. Now, last season, I think my favorite writer of the season was Glenn Morgan. He wrote uh, Six yes. Degrees of Freedom, along with Heather Ann Campbell, who wrote that episode we just talked about. He wrote right. The Traveler, which was one that I think we were a bit like that, I'm moving my hand like people can see. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, making me so so uh, at the time. But I I think as I rewatched that, I grew to appreciate it more. And then uh, the Blue Scorpion. So he was my favorite writer, really, of season one. Yeah. But he's only done the one episode in this season, which is this one eight, and it's directed by uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. So. Let's talk about the octopus in the room first, Paul. The um, <laughs> the setup of the episode in this Antarctic location, and all of a sudden we hear this narration come in. So tell me, what do you think of that? That was great. I uh, I, I very much enjoyed that. Uh, for those who have seen the episode, and I, I assume if you're listening to this, you have, we hear Rod Serling's voice. And for those who don't know, that's not actually his voice. It's an actor impersonating him, and yet it is true that Rod Serling did narrate a good number of episodes of the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. Yeah. And in fact, the very first episode he did in 1968 was called Sharks. So uh, even though this is not an actual tape of his voice, it's still something that he did do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did think that it was clever the way they were intercutting for an episode that is about as violent as anything we've seen so far uh, on this incarnation of Twilight Zone, they actually managed to keep the beginning of it almost kind of like the opening, you could say, of Jaws. Mm -hmm. In the beginning of Jaws, you know, the famous scene with the girl getting chomped and dragged, but you never actually see any violence. And by the same token, everything that's happening in the beginning to the first two characters uh you don't really actually see the except well you see blood flying all over the place but Mm -hmm. um uh it it keeps intercutting with the footage of the sharks 
which is I think very clever. It's an, it's a way of conveying what's happening without being needlessly gruesome. I do wonder whether they try to make something from the Jacques Cousteau series fit and they just couldn't get it to fit with the beats that they wanted. I wonder whether they tried that. So it was Rod's actual voice. I don't know. I don't know, but they went with Mark Silverman, which was fine. It's funny. You can tell, even though Silverman does a fantastic job. Yeah. And even though Sterling has a very distinct way of talking, there's still, you can always tell when somebody is doing his voice, if you know what I mean, because uh-huh. there's always that a little bit of a put on as you speak in the, you know, the Rod Serling tone, you, can, you know, <laughs> almost yeah. like somebody doing Humphrey Bogart, you know, they're always going to have that sweetheart kind of, uh-huh. you know, it's going to have a bit of an affectation to it, no matter how close you get. And I kept listening to it because knowing that he had done Jacques Cousteau, I thought, oh, are they actually using his voice? And then I'm listening and I'm like, no, that's close very close but it's not actually him so i think i can tell silverman because i've watched interviews with him on youtube i obviously have been on the tower of terror as well um sure. and he done blairy man in the last season so he is great you know he is really good um but i think I, i've just got that little tuning into to when he does it but i'm glad it was him anyway me too but i think what it does for me as well it, it was just a last season and I've said this very often, it wasn't so much seeing Rod that made me get a lump in my throat. It was the fact that they gave Rod Sailing his last closing narration. You know, yeah, that was the thing that meant a lot to me because The Bewitching Pool, it's no one's favorite episode, really, is it? Well, very few people, but believe it or not, there's some who will say that it is. <laughs> well, more power to them, more power to them. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's... um. It's nice that they gave him one last closing narration. And here, they've kind of very cleverly and surreptitiously gave him another opening narration, even though yes. even though we, we get Jordan Peele's one as well. So I thought it was a really nice touch, you know. And, and I like too, and I don't know if this was on purpose, but I got a kick out of the fact that when we see Peele's opening narration, because it's right after the two in the beginning have been, as we know, you know, attacked and killed. So obviously we're very scared mm-hmm. for what is there. And now it's in the the cooler there. Mm-hmm. And it cuts to that room. And I expected for half a second, I thought we would see like his shoe come in, like he would walk into the frame and then it would pan up and he would talk. But instead he starts to talk as we pan back. And I realize he's standing all the way at the other end of the room. <laughs> And I thought, I wonder if that's because he's thinking, I'm not going to be anywhere near that thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's a strange thing to comment on, I know, but I I kind of like that he was just wearing a nice warm coat as well, you know? Yes, (laughs) Just that that little bit of detail there, you know? Um, He's the narrator of the Twilight Zone. Can he feel the cold? I don't know, but just a little touch like like that. You know, we always see Serling in his suit, and yet when we see him outside... At the beginning of Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up, he's in the snow where the police officers are looking, uh-huh. and he's got a coat on. Yeah, yeah. So it's fitting, you know. Serling would change his attire to fit the setting. So, okay, the thing is, you know, we've spoke about last season and our hopes for this season and so on. One thing I wanted them to do was just an out-and-out strange tale, you know, something like shadow play 
where yes. you know you can maybe try and dig into meanings of it or, or whatnot. I just see it as a great, strange tale, you know. Same here. And yeah. I am completely open to an episode just not really having a great deal of subtext. I think there's a bit going on here if we talk about environment and so on. But I am completely open to the Twilight Zone just doing a strange tale. In fact, I welcome it and I'm happy uh, for yeah. it to do that. And I am a big fan of John Carpenter's thing. So mm-hmm. similar location, similar kind of right. setup. I'm completely open to that too. So there's a lot of elements that I'm I'm very happy with in this. But mm-hmm. you mentioned something before about it not quite feeling Twilight Zone. Do you want to um, elaborate on that at all? Well, what I meant was that with a lot of them, I don't know if it's on purpose, but there have been a number of episodes this season that have been evocative of a certain uh, movie. Mm. Uh, You know, in the case of Among the Untrodden, uh, there's a feeling, you mentioned Carrie, another one that I thought of, especially in light of the ending, was Fight Club. Mm. In the sense of somebody who we think is subservient to another character has actually been created by that character and is Mm. not really there, in a sense. Although I guess Irene is, but you know what I mean. And in the case of, um, I think it was downtime, there was almost a sense of like the Truman Show or maybe, uh, uh, you know what I mean? There's been a little bit of a feeling of that and and so on. I could mention some of the other, almost every episode has had some movie, and by which I mean, not an inappropriate one. I I think it's, you know, just in the the flavor of it, the tone of it. Um, And in this case, you mentioned the thing and it also kind of feels a bit like Alien to me as well. What I like is when, and this was very much true with the first episode we were just discussing, uh, it creates one set of expectations and then it subverts them. Mm-hmm. And I like when it does that, both positively and negatively. Mm-hmm. Positively in the case of downtime, for the most part, it's a bittersweet one. Positively in the case of a small town, uh, negatively in, a, in the case of a couple of others. But here I just felt like except for the end of it, it was pretty much the thing, alien. Yeah. And we really spend 80 or 90% of it watching sort of, it's your standard, who is the boogeyman going to kill next? And we don't, it isn't really until the end that it's like, oh, guess what? There's a twist. And then uh, there's a twist on the twist. But up until that point, it's pretty much just, it's a horror film and we're, everybody's getting picked off yeah. or most everybody. So I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, the first time I watched it, I'd probably watched too many episodes on the run and I didn't <laughs> pay as much attention as I should. And I, and I watched it today and you know what? It's a great location, very claustrophobic, yeah. good cast, good creature effects. Okay. I'm enjoying this, but does it feel like the twilight zone? Not so much, not so much, yeah. you know, and right. that, that's a shame. And I was waiting for that, the shoe to drop or something where it was like, okay, now it feels like the twilight zone, but yes, I don't think it, it ever really happened for me because right. 
I mean, we, we are kind of getting to the end, I suppose, but it is a short episode. It's a funny one because I enjoy it. I enjoy Alien. I enjoy the thing. Yeah. So I, right. I do enjoy it. I'm just not feeling Twilight Zone. But then we get to a point in the story where poor Joel McHale has to try and explain all this, you know? Exactly. And he gets put on quite a bit because early on in the episode, and I wrote this down because on this rewatch, I was like, what? No one would really say that. Um, yeah, true. There's a lady called Ling, the one who was using the audio translator. And at one point, Joe McHale's character, Orson, says to the other lady, he says, it's strange. Although Ling is just an observer from the Chinese Antarctic administration, did you see how protective she got of that octopus? Right. <laughs> now, it, it was just so unnatural to me. He was telling the audience who she was because yes. uh, Channing would already know that. And I think yes. it was a precursor to what Joel, Joel McHale would be kind of burdened with later on. Do you know what I mean? I do. And that's part of the problem with this, uh, that there's there's so much talk. Um, most of it, as, as I was saying before, unfolds like your standard horror film. Uh, but then we get to the end. And it just seemed like everybody, the la in literally the last five minutes, everybody figures everything out and says it in the most exposition-heavy way yeah, imaginable. Yeah. All of a sudden, I mean, Joel, the actor's name, you know, looks at a screen and goes, a couple of screens flash, and he's like, oh, my God, they figured it out. It's gene splicing. It's mutation. It's blah, 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 blah. And you're like, you got all that in yeah. 10 seconds? <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> it was just crazy. And then it was just, it was a lot. Everybody was figuring everything out in a flash in the last two or three minutes. Yeah. And it was just yeah. a lot to, wait, what, what? I'm sorry. The Chinese want to get the properties of the octopus so that they can have people who can live in the water. But yeah. Oh no. It turns out the octopus is super, super smart. So he's, taking our information so he can figure out how to make octopuses live on the land. And they've been biding their time for 700 million years until this ship showed up and something that they just gained in 10 minutes from this ship enables them to finally take their rightful place as the true heirs of, the <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? It was just a lot to process, a lot of words. Uh, and uh, it was man. And it, it just sort of grounded to a halt. Um, and yeah. You know, I, I hate to try and say I can do better than someone like Glenn Morgan, but I almost yeah. feel like we have an episode like And When the Sky Was Opened, which is you don't know what's causing this to happen, but you just get a sense that these people have gone too far. They've breached right. the barrier they shouldn't breach. They've gone somewhere they shouldn't go. And I almost feel that if if you take – all of this nonsense about, yes, we want to make octopus people and all of that stuff out yeah. at the end. Right. And you, you just really streamline it down to like, and you can even sew a little environmental message through it if you want that now the yeah. ice caps are melting, these things have come out, but just they've gone somewhere they shouldn't go and now they're out of their depth and that right. actually we're not the smartest people in the room. I'm happy with, I'm even happy with the octopus being really smart. I'm just not right. happy with it using mobile phones and stuff. Right. That was just right. maybe a nudge too far. 
right. you know so i think there's probably something there just for a strange tale oh my god we're not actually the smartest thing on earth we went somewhere we shouldn't go right maybe you could do something with that but the coding octopus unfortunately yeah you know and that's the thing i mean it this was the first one, I think one of the reasons for, for being disappointed, even though I'm also a great admirer of Glenn Morgan and his work on X-Files and, mm -hmm. and so many other things, is that after five episodes prior to this, where they very successfully subverted expectations and surprised us, this started out seeming like it was going to go to destination A, and that's exactly where it went. Mm -hmm. With a little bit of exposition-heavy twist at the end, that was like left you more instead of like, wow, that's really cool, which is how I felt at the end of Among the Untrodden. Mm -hmm. It was more like, oh, really? What? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then plus I have to admit one thing, it shouldn't matter, but there's a reason that I think people like shark stories. It's because sharks look really scary. They swim along, they've got these rows of teeth. Uh -huh. No matter, it's hard to make an octopus look malevolent i don't doubt that i'm no marine biologist like george costanza and seinfeld i <laughs> i only can pretend to be one yeah and i'm sure that they are capable of all kinds of, of malevolent behavior but it was just it's, it's still i don't know it's more like watching the blob than i thought it was pretty cool on the screen and like early on when it was first put in the tank and then you saw it see the ink obscuring the view and all yes. that i i quite like the octopus but i think any good that the episode does do now unfortunately it's the episode about the octopus that used the phone and could code you know what i mean yeah, yeah. it just <laughs> true it just yeah. really um sours it unfortunately um yeah which is a shame and it, and it did it had a couple of nice visual touches and i mm -hmm. liked for example one thing i liked was how they would show what was supposed to be the octopus's point of view and it made me think a little bit of the views that we see of hal 9000 in 2001 a space odyssey yeah yeah and you actually see Hal reading the astronaut's lips at one point mm -hmm. and uh i don't know if that was on purpose but that was what it made me think of you know this idea that oh you're standing right in front of my tank having conversations as if I'm just a dumb animal, but guess what? Yeah. I, I know exactly what you're saying, you know? So yeah. But in the end, you're right. It's the octopus who could code. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame. It's a shame. But I guess what I will give it is it was a, a world ending twilight zone, which, you know, I kind of like those every now and again, midnight sun, everyone doomed. Look, something's yeah. just happened. We're all going to die. I like those occasionally as well. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's all. Or like the end of uh, one that uh, uh, that very few people are fond of: black leather jackets. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, it ends, and the the they're invading, and that's how it ends. Yeah, you know, or the end of uh, a, a much more highly regarded episode: the the monsters are doing Maple Street. Yeah, you know, yeah. the aliens are succeeding. And the invasion is proceeding apace. So it does slot in very well with those. So if you had to give this one a rating, Paul, any any final words and any score out of 10 from you? Mm, this definitely feels more in the five to five range for me, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Maybe six yeah. if I was feeling generous, but that's as high as, absolutely as high as I would go. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah. 
can't can't say I was crazy about it. Which, and again, that's of the eight I've seen, it's really the only one that I've been. Not that I think the others are unspotted masterpieces, you know, but I just felt like the the other seven that I've seen so far uh, were stronger in varying degrees for me, at least, than this episode was. You know what? I'm going to go with a five as well because you know what? It wasn't like it was offensively bad. It wasn't like I I watched it and thought, oh, this is terrible. It was just a little disappointing because there was some good stuff in there that didn't quite pay off and it was ruined by the the kind of exposition. But But hey, we got to hear Serling. Exactly. You know, exactly. (laughs) And it was claustrophobic and it was this, that and the other. So it was all right. And it was. And even though I said, you know, uh, talking about it being like a horror film, I was saying that critically only because of what this is, an episode of the rebooted Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. as a as a suspenseful piece of film yeah it, it worked yeah you know and and it was it was startling to see werewolf larry with a tentacle out of his nose and it was startling to see poor frisch's eyeball laying on the ground mm-hmm. that was pretty gruesome <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm glad we don't get too many uh violent moments like that but i suppose it's understandable in this one so okay so that is our episode, I guess. Paul, it, it's always a pleasure, man. I'm glad we had a chance to catch up. I'm, I'm sad it wasn't at Sailing Fest, but I'm glad we got to do this at least. So Yeah, it's been, it's, it's been great, and uh, I've really been glad. It's kind of funny because I almost feel like, because I feel like it's a shame in a way because I feel like there's been less buzz about this season than last season. Mm-hmm. And yet I almost wish it was the other way around. There was a lot of expectation with what I feel is the weaker of the two seasons mm-hmm. and with this time around i don't know if it has to do with the fact that well there can only be one the beginning of anything is going to get more attention yeah uh that may be a part of it um but it also may be the release schedule dropping all at once rather than episode by episode so it's a tough one that i mean because i would have preferred week by week i'm noticing that more and more because I feel like every time I've watched an episode twice, I've it's settled in with me. I've enjoyed it more. And right. when you're going week to week, you have the time to do that. Whereas I just skimmed yes. through this season and I probably missed a lot of things going on. But I hope it's not damaging for the show. And the CBS publicity people are doing a good job of trying to keep the conversation going. They're putting out yes. those nice posters, aren't they, on Twitter and things. Have you seen those? Right. Yeah, that's true. Like a movie poster for each episode. So they're trying to keep things going, but you can only keep it going so long. Right. I, I imagine but that by the time I've finished this coverage, everyone will have well watched these episodes, you know? Oh, right. Yeah. Which is why you're not doing the one episode per podcast. I know the way we did last season, you know, and it's a shame because I remember, you know, back in the days when Lost was on and that was a huge hit, Mm. you know, part of the fun was everybody not only watched one episode per week, but there was only one time to watch it. Now, of course you could DVR it, you know, I know that, but the point is that, you know, and then you could get together with your friends who were Lost fans. Mm-hmm. And you had a couple days after an episode aired to be like, oh, did you see that? And you could swap theories and say what you liked and what you didn't. And it was fun. And you could anticipate what's going to happen next week. But yeah, I mean, when it's all at once, then everybody just kind of gulps it down. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, I'll see you in 11 and a half months. 
Yeah, that's it. They're just on to the next thing then. So Right. Exactly. Well, but yeah, I hope it's I haven't talked about it quite as much. I think I will. I wanted to wait until I finished the season, which I'm sure I will in the next day or two here. Mm-hmm. And then I'll write at least one post, maybe a couple, depending. Yeah. Uh kind of giving a sum and and recommending that people uh, you know, who are game give it a try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So because I really liked it. I mean, some people just are like, no, I just, you know, I don't want anything to do with it. But my feeling is I'm like, I just want to watch it as its own thing. Yeah. The original Twilight Zone will always be something special and it will always be of its time. It's something that could only have happened at that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you somehow magically, through the magic of the fifth dimension, could have Rod Serling here today and say, here's your original people and what he would come up with. It would not feel like what those episodes are. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, in a sense, it's like, you know, I can say, you know, as a huge Beatles fan, you know, I can say, well, that's it. Unless it's all four of them, I'm not going to listen to it. Or I can say, you know what? Yeah. A, a Paul McCartney record or a John Lennon record or a George Harrison record is never going to give me the same heights of joy that a Beatle record will but there's still a lot to enjoy and I'm going to enjoy it. And that's kind of the way I feel about this. So, you know, I think it mirrors my outlook as well. I've always yeah. been open to it, always been positive about it. If I don't like an episode, I'll, I'll be honest about it, but I never go in with that already defeated attitude that, right. It just, it's just not the way I approach things anyway, but especially right. something that has the potential to, to just give me a lot of pleasure. So that's a great sure. way of looking at it, Paul. Thank you. You bet. So, Paul, where can people find your stuff online, man? Where you can find me? Let's see. Well, uh, of course, on Twitter, as we mentioned, uh, my user name is The Night Gallery, which is pretty long for a username, but <laughs> somehow I tried to have just The Night Gallery. I tried to have just Night Gallery when I started, but even back in 2010 when I started the page, it was already taken by a band uh-huh. with that name. So, anyway, so The Night Gallery on Twitter. And on uh, my blog is on uh, WordPress. Mm-hmm. So it's wordpress.thenightgallery.com. Or maybe it's, no, I'm sorry, thenightgallery.wordpress.com. <laughs> getting everybody confused. And then uh, on Facebook, uh, the page is facebook.com slash of shadow and substance. If there's ever a Night Gallery reboot, man, they're going to be coming for you and that Twitter I username. So. Be ready for it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of people, you know, it's funny because one of the things that's really changed, if I just had a minute to mention here, and that is that one of the things that's different now, because I'm still doing largely the same kind of thing, you know, sharing, you know, facts and quotes mm. and, and stuff about Twilight Zone. Well, you will find if you're, t- if I'm talking about Twilight Zone, you know, now, because everybody has access to the same books and, and information and stuff like that, you know, people will, you know, They'll come in and they'll just be like, yes, you know, and John Hoyt was also in this other episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> but if I say anything about Night Gallery, most of the time, everybody's just like, oh, you know, <laughs> like, they don't know what else to say, you know, because very yeah. few people are, are you know, kind of have any kind of expertise, uh, you know, on that show, which is a shame. So we need Chris Brown to come back, right? <laughs> Or you to do your own night gallery podcast, man. There's there's room. There's there's only one of them. So that's right. I know. I think it's about time. You yeah, know. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Paul. It's always a pleasure, man. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Tom. 
Okay, so we are going to play out on some listener thoughts about these two episodes and maybe some stragglers from the last one. If if anyone wants to uh, to jump in because they missed the deadline on that, that's cool. I don't mind a bit of crossover. But this episode will be going out on the 15th of July. So if you have any feedback for episodes 7 and 8 of the new Twilight Zone, then please have that in to tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com in the form of a clip by Tuesday, the 21st of July. So let's hear what the listeners thought of these two episodes, and I'll speak to you soon. Hey, Tom and listeners, Zach Moore here with my thoughts on the fifth and sixth episodes of season two. First off, among the untrodden, I don't know what untrodden means. I guess it means something similar to downtrodden. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up. But uh, I, I really liked this episode. It was kind of Mean Girls meets The Twilight Zone meets Carrie a little bit. And I thought the two main actresses were great. Madison and Irene, those characters are really fleshed out and believable. Uh, you know, one is like the kind of introverted nerd who's trying to be cool. And the other one is, you know, the one that puts on a face but knows that everything's fake and is frustrated by it. And that plays into, you know, the reveals at the end of the episode, right? But I'm totally sold. And, uh, and you know, I, I think they captured the way young people talk as well. Um, again, I, I know I mentioned this in my last feedback. I feel like maybe I'm just used to it, but I feel like they're they're incorporating the language uh, more organically this time around. Uh, because yeah, as young people, that's how they talk, right? So I'm really interested to rewatch this one, uh, knowing the twist and seeing if you can like connect all the dots. Because uh, I, I yeah, I mean, this episode could have gone a lot of ways. I think you know, honestly. I think it would have been cooler. They go for these double twists a lot, I think, in these newer episodes to kind of keep you off balance, and that, and that works. But I think it might have been cooler if, at the end, uh, 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 Madison was right and that Irene is the one that had the powers and was kind of projecting those onto Madison in order to become her friend. And uh, that, that that might have made more sense with the plot, but I don't know. Like I said, I have to rewatch it. I'd be interested to see how it holds up because, as we find out, you know, Irene is completely made up uh, from, from Madison conjuring her to be her friend. And and yeah, what a what a bittersweet ending. And but then you know the cycle continues too, right? With the with the new person coming in, and uh, I, I thought that was an interesting way to end. I didn't know like is there going to be an exact Irene walking in, but just someone just similar enough, and just different enough. And and yeah, no, I, I really liked it because it kept you it kept you guessing, and, and you went on the journey, um, you know, with Madison as, as she discovered her powers as well. And, and I, I, one of my favorite things was when when uh, when uh, Irene puts all of the powers on the mirror. And Madison's like, I don't know what any of that is. So she's like, okay, you know stuff, you can see stuff, you can do stuff. Like, really simplifies the language of what all these uh, psychic powers are. So, no, I, I thought this was a real good episode, and, and it, you know, kept me guessing. And you, you knew, like, the click of girls was going to come into play at some point, but you didn't really know how. And to see, you know, them kind of fall out with Madison, and Irene gets, quote-unquote, accepted by them. But you know that they were up to no good. And, and and yeah, this is a, this is a good one. This is a good one. And, and I really did enjoy it. So... Another win for uh, season two in my book. And then uh, moved on to eight. Well, this uh, this one was a miss for me. This is, you know, I've mentioned, you know, Tom, I was on and we talked about, you know, what are you looking forward to? And I mentioned Joe McHale probably two or three times. <laughs> I was excited to see him because uh, I love community as a show so much. And that's why I was excited to see Jillian Jacobs back in the first episode. And this one's like, oh, cool. Are they like astronauts on an alien planet? I was close because they are the, the Whipple Corporation is back, the Whipple Company. And, uh, 
th- that's how they get away with blatantly reusing the set of the spaceship from uh, uh, Six Degrees of Freedom from the first season. Because that is totally that's totally the same set. But hey, good on them, right? I mean, Twilight Zone used the Forbidden Planet sets and costumes, you know, time after time after time. Uh, so it's the same company, and they're like an Arctic research station. So it's like I'm thinking the thing, like who's not, right? Uh, or the uh, the thing inspired episode of the X Files, uh, Ice first season episode. I'm sure a lot of genre fans know what I'm talking about. But this one was disappointing. Like, I, I don't know. There were so many characters and motivations, and I was com- a little confused because it was like, okay, Joe McHale's character is having an affair, I guess, with the other character. Maybe, maybe not. He was like, nobody knows about us, but does that mean the plan? Because they show the picture of his wife, and he texts the other woman. So I don't know. That's some, a, a plot that went nowhere. That's why I was confused. I was like, is this going to come into play somehow? But it's not. And then uh, the Chinese government had their own uh, objectives there. And then I'm not sure exactly whose role these other peoples were. Um, and the octopus, I, I, I don't know. I was, I was thinking, like, they were going to play into, like, the whole... I know a few years ago there was some story that octopuses might be alien, or octopi, excuse me, might be alien in origin or something. I, maybe they were going to play that front. I would have enjoyed that more. But apparently these are just super intelligent octopuses, octo, again, octopi, <laughs> that because of you know, the ice caps melting are finally, you know, coming out into, you know, the wa- liquid water instead of ice water. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly. There's a lot of setup here, and I don't know. I, I just became just super intelligent octopuses running around using octopi. I keep saying that. But super intelligent octopi running around using laptops and cell phones, and I don't know. I, I expected, I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect this, and it was hard it's just hard to wrap my head around what was going on. And then the end of the world is because one of the octopus, they redo the Chinese government's plan to incorporate octopus DNA into human DNA, instead incorporate human DNA into octopus DNA, so then they can take over the world. So, hey, another Twilight Zone episode with the world ends. Didn't expect it to go that way, but I don't know. Like, it, 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 I just, it, it seems... I, I don't know, man. I, that's, <laughs> that's all I can say. It was, this was a miss for me. I was disappointed. Uh, maybe on a rewatch, I'll, I'll like it better. But uh, it's definitely at the bottom of my list so far. So let's see. We are we are six episodes in. We are five for six in my book. And but but all all that said, I'm still re- really enjoying season two and uh, interested to see how it ranks up against season one when it's all said and done. So talk to y'all next time. Hi everybody, this is Shelley Griska, and I'd like to start out with a poem. It's called, She Dwelt Among the Untrodden Ways, by William Wordsworth. She dwelt among the untrodden ways beside the springs of Dove, a a maid for whom were none to praise and very few to love, a violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. And um, I think it's interesting that the in the screenplay, which, first of all, I think the screenplay in this was fantastic. I think that um, the acting, this is far and away my favorite episode. I'll just get that out of the way right now. But um, 
I, the teacher in at the beginning is talking about Wordsworth, so um, it, it uh, inspired me to Google, and here we are. And I think it's this poem is very significant because it very much parallels the the plot here about a a girl who is off the literally off the beaten track, unappreciated, and yet whose life and death makes all the difference to the narrator of the poem, and. Um, it's just, I was very impressed. I love the way that this takes the, um, the pre the kind of, uh, premise and tropes of Carrie and the craft and kind of flips them on their head in that the mean girl, um, is Madison is, is the protagonist and she is the one who moves and grows and changes, even though we, we don't see that coming in the beginning. We kind of think Irene is going to be the protagonist. And um, I think it was really smartly written that there's this, um, th that the girl, uh, Irene, who is conjured um, by Madison to kind of lead her out of the prison she's in of her conformity to these girls that are horrible <laughs> and, and into a sense of her own power and um, her own agency. Um, is is her shadow, but but not the usual kind of shadow we'd think of. We'd think of a shadow as being more um, antisocial and um, violent or, or angry or whatever. And Irene is actually is kind of mousy, eager to fit in, but she is the uh, the opposite of how um, Madison projects herself. And in making friends with that vulnerable part of herself with um that uh earnest and um open and um eager to please um aspect um she's able to uh snap out of it in a sense snap out of her um uh her desperation to fit in with these shallow superficial uh, ultimately weak people that she is not one of. Um, and so anyway, fantastic episode. I can't say enough about it. Um, I'm giving it a 10. I can't say the same for eight. I The first time I watched eight, I only got 15 minutes in it and I had to turn it off. I just couldn't go any further. I just did not care about any of these characters. I didn't care that they were getting killed by an octopus. Um, I, I didn't even care about the octopus that much. Um, I did force myself to rewatch it again, and yeah, it's basically alien under the sea, but without um, without a protagonist I care about, and yeah, okay, the octopus is, is also up to no good. Uh, who cares? Um, anyway, this one I'm giving a one. I wish it didn't exist. Um, it was very nice to hear Rod talking, um, and that was a nice surprise because I'd totally forgotten he had narrated those um, Jacques Cousteau documentaries. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, ugh, big miss. So anyway, uh, thanks a lot. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Hey there, Tom. Harold Clark reporting in from Buda, Texas, talking about Among the Untrodden and Eight. <clears throat> so Among the Untrodden, um, it actually reminded me of uh, the movie Sucker Punch. Uh, if you haven't seen that movie, uh, the main character is um, 
called Baby Doll uh, until you get to the end of the movie. And then you realize, oh, Baby Doll's not the main character. It's somebody else. Or it's somebody else's story. Uh, so I won't say who that is for those who haven't seen Sucker Punch, but guilty pleasure, Sucker Punch, that is. Um, but uh, yeah, so here we have this episode. And we all, you know, we think that Irene is the main character. And then by the end, when uh, she dissolves and disappears, you realize this is a story about Madison. So that's a cool idea. Uh, and it does build in a reason to go back and watch it again in, with the context that Madison is the main character and and really kind of see you know, you know see how really how she's reacting to things and setting things up um when when it shows that the key dissolves after they have basically used it and they don't no, no longer need it and it dissolves I thought oh what if they need to summon somebody in order to get something, maybe they summon somebody because they want to steal their their homework or, I don't know, steal money or something. Or summon somebody because they need some information. And then, therefore, once you're done with them, they would just dissolve. So I'd kind of kicked that idea around. Didn't think that Irene would dissolve. So that was a nice twist. Um, you know, so that, that was enjoyable. Uh, overall, I'm going to give this episode a 6 out of 10. Um, I would like to give it a higher score, but I I, I have to ding it um, personally. Uh, I don't know, maybe one, maybe two points. I'm not sure. Uh, man, just because of the language on this one. You know, it's one thing, I mean, if you're trying to make some, you know, you know school full of bully girls, you know, they got to say, quote unquote, some mean things, I guess, in order to make them, quote unquote, the bully. But... Man, you know, I don't need to watch this again and hear, you know, hear that type of that type of quote bully talk or hateful speech or whatever, uh, you know. But you know, we we talked about that for last season. You know, unfortunately, I think this is an episode. I think Brandon mentioned it that he's not going to show his daughter because it's just it's just too rough. And you know, not being able to show Twilight Zone to the to the youngins, I don't know. There's still something that kind of rubs me the wrong way on that. But it is what it is. So 6 out of 10 for that. Uh, on to 8. So with Twilight Zone, uh, you have, you know, you have that one about the, the gremlin on the wing. Or that one about the dummy that's alive. Or that one about the talky Tina murder doll. And uh, this one, uh, this is the, the killer octopus episode. Uh, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um, you know, I mean, it's, it, there were some cool images of the creature, you know, killing the people with, you know, the tentacle tear and all that stuff. But I actually thought it would be better if you didn't see any of that and somehow to show even more how, uh, smart the octopus is that the octopus actually kills people you know, maybe by somehow you know, stabbing him with a knife or, you know, knocking something heavy over and then returning back to its tank and just watching the people show up and go, oh, who stabbed so-and-so and get a little bit of a little bit of accusations happening. Um, you know, so that, that might have been interesting. Um, in the upcoming season four episode, The New Exhibit, 
something very similar happens. A situation happens, and it's left up to the viewer to try and determine, well, wait a minute, did this happen or not? And if it did, then how did it happen? You know, I think it would have been really neat to have this, that play to, to, to not really show, you know, the octopus actually doing it, but give you just enough to think, hmm, was he out there or not? Or is this somebody backstabbing somebody? Or are these, you know, people not on the up and up? But, you know, yeah, you know, that's fine. They, they took it the direction that they wanted. Um, the ending, though, was really super fast. Uh, they spent a lot of the episode, I appreciate that the episode was very short at 30 minutes or so, something like that, but this this is one of them that maybe could have gone a little longer or maybe, I don't know. But they did a, a good job of setting up the atmosphere for you know 20 minutes or so of the episode, and then the last, man, the last 5, 10 minutes or so, you know, you find out about, you know, the, I get, the Americans, I think, wanting to use octopus, I guess, for pharmaceutical reasons, and then the Asian lady, she, she wants to use them for, I guess, war stuff. Um, and then, you know, the octopus outthinks them all and says, ha-ha, you think you want to make a half-man, half-octopus, huh? Well, how about a half-octopus, half-man? And, you know, that was just super quick. Got into the computer somehow, something glow-in-the-dark lights, you know, so it just was real quick, and, um, you know, would, 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 would a half-octopus, half-man species, you know, defeat humankind? I don't know, you know, that's, that's a very interesting sci-fi conversation, um, I guess they, I don't know, maybe, it, wish they would have explored that a little more some, somehow, um, you know, as it is, it just, it just went real quick. Um, it, it's funny because these two episodes both reminded me of a movie. Uh, uh, this, this, when I, when I realized the last one minute of the movie that, oh, you know, octopuses can go the other way and get some human DNA in them, kind of reminded me of, uh, the movie Pacific Rim, uh, for all those kaiju fans out there and the friends of the show, um, but basically, for who, for those who haven't seen it, um, humans basically can kind of jack into the kaiju brain and kind of see their world from their perspective. And but then they realize, uh oh, well, it's a two way street. Not only did you see their world, but they saw yours. So kind of similar here. You know, you're, we're doing this DNA splicing. Well, guess what? That's a two way street. Um, so it was. It was good. Um, uh, I was contemplating giving this a six uh, as well, but I thought, well, I liked it better than Among the Untrodden. Um, uh, and then I, I did read a review just to just to refresh my memory on it, and it, it reminded me of of how well the atmosphere. I mean, it was shot fantastic. Uh, again, the death scenes were cool. You know, octopus look great. So I'll bump it up a, a notch and give this one a 7 out of 10. Um, you know, and, you know, it's an enjoyable one. Whether they're trying to say that, hey, humans just dominate the world. Uh, you know, it, you know, I guess so. You know, I mean, it's 
I guess it's more of a fun romp for me. Like I said, I wish they would have expanded the last five, ten minutes and really get into the ethical uh, quandary dilemma of, you know, I don't know, experiments on animals, other things like that. Just get into it a little quick, but, man, this was like the Cliff Notes version of of something like that. So, anyway, uh, so all in all, these two episodes, enjoyable. Like I said, I wish Untrodden didn't have as much language, but, eh, you know, they're they're... Enjoyable, so better than average for me, but not nothing yet that's really knocked it out of the park for me. So we got a couple more episodes, so we'll see how that works out. So uh, again, I'll be collecting collecting your scores uh, over at Flick Chat. So uh, I'm going to check those forums now for these two episodes. I've not been wanting to see anybody else's opinions on that, so now I'll check on those and start getting some some feedback from you guys in there. So I will talk at you next week. Hi, Tom. Chad here with a couple thoughts on Among the Untrodden and Eight. Among the Untrodden felt like The Craft meets Mean Girls meets Twilight Zone. I really liked this one a lot. This one has emotional resonance, good suspense, a winding plot, and the essence of it for me was misdirection. I thought the protagonist was Irene, but instead it's Madison, who created Irene as a projection. I thought the moral of the story was going to be power corrupts, as Madison grew into her abilities with Irene's help, and Irene became corrupted by being part of the crowd. But instead, the moral arc was Madison accepting herself and letting someone, even a not real someone, be her genuine friend. Misdirection is a great theme here because so much adolescent bullying comes not from confidence, but from insecurity. So much human cruelty is preemptive aggression, itself a misdirection, obfuscating self-hate behind hate of the other. A standout scene was the party on the roof, where Madison and Irene sit alone on the ledge as their friends party behind them. As Irene gets drunk and falls, my stomach literally turned, partly because I'm afraid of heights, but this scene was also a really excellent metaphor. Just like Icarus flying too close to the sun, the metaphor for the moral arc that I thought they were giving us uh, was really captured in that scene. I also love the scene at the science fair where you are misdirected by thinking that Irene uh, is doing harm to those who are tormenting her when it's actually Madison coming to her aid. Uh, that was a really beautifully done uh, scene. So this was a solid nine for me. My only complaint is that the episodes in this season, including this one, they do have... Um, they do have the morality and the meaning that the Twilight Zone episodes have, but they, they are really buried behind layers and they really take a lot of analysis to get to. Whereas a lot of my favorite uh, classic Twilight Zones like Maple Street and Eye of the Beholder have a morality and a meaning that just punch you right in the guts. And these episodes, they have them, but you really have to dig and analyze. And I suspect that watching them two or three times uh, will actually uh, reap a lot of rewards. I think they're made in a much more subtle kind of way, but there is a little something missing to me in this scene in that regard. So moving on, episode six is actually episode eight, and I give it a solid 11 out of 10 points. How does it get 11 points when there's only 10 available? I'll get to that soon. I seem to stand alone, according to Flick Chat, in loving this episode, and that's fine by me. Look, here's the deal. 
A brilliant murder monster octopus stealthily kills half the crew of a deep ocean research team and ultimately overthrows humanity as the dominant species by wrapping itself around an iPhone and stealing a Chinese researcher's DNA. How can anyone not immediately see this as deserving of being in the upper echelon of great Twilight Zone episodes? I mean, come on. So this episode, the theme to me was secrecy and deception. We're clued into an apparent secret affair early on. The uh, environmental research mission of the, of the voyage itself is uh, secretly not what it is purported to be. Um, and that secret is actually secretly known by the Chinese scientist who is doing her own clandestine work uh, while pretending to be part of the regular voyage's environmental mission. So all of them are blind to the secret plans of the brilliant murder octopus um, that's going to dethrone humanity. So this one is all about secrecy. It's all about deception and if all that isn't enough, we are treated to extended clips of Rod Serling narrating an ocean documentary. I believe this is the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau, but I could be wrong. That's how it gets the 11 points. Giving these clips of Rod Serling doing that documentary in an Ocean Voyage episode of The Twilight Zone, that's at least two extra credit points right away. And I go ahead and give this episode nine, and nine plus the two extra credit points gives you 11, right? So... That's why this is the best Twilight Zone episode of all time. Disagree if you want. That's fine. Um, this episode, you know, whereas the Among the Untrodden was like The Craft and Mean Girls meets Twilight Zone, this one was Twilight Zone meets H.P. Lovecraft with a nod to the 2019 plot of Godzilla, King of the Monsters. That movie, if anyone hasn't seen it, the, the message there, the plot there is basically that humanity has wreaked havoc on the planet, on itself, and on every other species, and it's time for us to go. And I really can't argue too much with that. So uh, this episode, in all seriousness, was probably the closest we'll get to a Twilight Zone kaiju episode, a giant monster or a monster on the loose film. So that's another reason it's top tier for me. I don't have any proof, but I suspect they went with an octopus as the monster because octopuses are brilliant, but also Showa-era Japanese kaiju special effects genius Eiji Tsuburaya was a big fan of octopuses, and he put them in King Kong vs. Godzilla and actually reshot the ending to Frankenstein Conquers the World just so that Frankenstein could fight a giant octopus in the climax of that film. And if anybody hasn't seen Frankenstein Conquers the World, it's a must-see cinematic genius, uh, 10 out of 10, Stanley Kubrick-level genius, trust me. Uh, check it out. Anyway, uh, that's enough for me. The only other thing I would add is that my ratings for this season are really only based on the writing and the stories because everything from set design to the acting to the direction to the tone and quality uh, of the series. I remember you saying, you know, is this going to be a premiere type of show? And it absolutely is. So it's it's 10 out of 10 as far as the acting and the designs and the, the cinematography of every episode. So my ratings are really just based on story. And I don't really know if that's uh, the right way to do it. But, you know, everything else is perfect. So anyway, that's more than enough for me. And I uh, can't wait to see what's next. Cheers. Hi, Tom. It's Adam. 
Uh, well, I've noticed a trend with these episodes so far. With us watching them in couplets, I tend to be giving one of them a lot of praise and the other less so, and this week's no exception. Uh, first, cutting right to it, I really loved Among the Untrodden. I was actually bracing myself for it based on some of the hints that I had heard about this episode, but I went in knowing nothing about the plot, and I was really surprised by how much I loved it. I know that you will do an in-depth analysis on the episode, so while I do have a lot to say about this one, I'll stick with just a few specific points that I noticed. First, I thought the episode did a really good job in sticking to its own rules. In some of the episodes, the rules are somewhat loose, which lends to a convenient out or in for the protagonist, which I think can hurt the integrity of the episode. In this case, the rules were established early on, and the twists followed those rules. Madison could create things with her mind, but it would disappear after its usefulness had been fulfilled, and this had an excellent payoff in the end, but we see it happen within the first few minutes of the episode, even though we didn't have any idea of what it means. She threw a pencil at Irene, and we watch it disappear, uh, and we might assume that it was Irene that made it disappear, not Madison. And so I love an episode when watching it on a second time gives you answers to questions you didn't even know to ask the first time around. Second, in one of your recent episodes, I think it was the interview with Wynne Rosenfeld, but I'm not certain, but you had discussed that the narration is not intended to add to the story at all, just to enhance it. I like that concept, and I think it's in line with how Serling approached his narrations. However, in this episode, I will admit that I would have been lost, at least on the first watch, if not for Peel's closing narration. And I don't think that's a bad thing in itself. I like that he explained what I almost understood but wasn't fully there, that Irene was a creation of Madison, and that this new girl was Madison's way of creating a new friend every time she needs one. This is an excellent twist. You have this sad figure with a lot of power who creates friends, then accidentally destroys them and creates a new one. It's an even more disturbing version of Anthony Fremont while being a more sympathetic character than he was. Third, just a tidbit, but I had shared last season about Jordan Peele sporting the Hamilton Ventura watch that Serling was famous for wearing, and I noticed that it's on full glorious display in this episode during the open narration. For those who aren't familiar with the watch, it was the first electric watch ever created, and it had a retro science fiction look to it with a triangle-shaped face and an Art Deco-style wings. Because of its retro science fiction style, it's the official watch of the Men in Black, and it was famously sported by both Rod Serling and Elvis Presley. I absolutely love the details the producers put into the show to give Peel even the same watch that Rod Serling wore. It's that level of attention to detail that I think has made the show thrive compared with previous reboots of the show. I have a lot more to say about this episode, but chances are that most of it will have already been said, and so just suffice it to say that I really love this episode, and so far it might be at the top of the series for me. As for 8, I did not hate the episode, but it has issues for me. It honestly felt less like a Twilight Zone episode to me, and more like an episode of the 90s reboot of The Outer Limits. And I happen to enjoy that reboot, so looking at it through that lens, I can easily enjoy this episode well enough. But it didn't really capture the feel of the Twilight Zone for me. A lot of comments have been made in the past about the length of the episode hurting the story. I remember there was a lot of feedback given for episodes like The Comedian, in which many felt that it could have been a tighter story if they had stuck with the confines of 30 minutes. I actually felt this episode had the opposite problem. 
Keeping it at a mere 31 minutes, I think, hurt the potential of the story, and the ending felt really rushed to me. But, frankly, that wasn't the only problem with it. It's the Twilight Zone, so I expect to suspend disbelief, but this stretched to the breaking point for me. A super-intelligent octopus? Yeah, sure. An octopus that can learn from humans on how to take over the world? Okay. An octopus that can read genetic code on a computer and translate it to converting their own genetic code on the fly? Yeah, the boundary has been pushed way too far for me to buy into that. Again, had they made this episode a bit longer, they probably could have come up with a better explanation that wouldn't have distracted me from the larger story. And I suppose everyone will have different thresholds for that breaking point, but that one crossed way over past the point and really shattered the disbelief for me. I did learn something really fun and interesting about the making of this episode. I was part of a brief conversation on Facebook with Mark Silverman, the actor who was sanctioned by the Serling estate to play the voice of Rod Serling. We heard him previously in a substantial role during Blurry Man last season, and he is, of course, the voice of Serling in the Tower of Terror at Walt Disney World. But he also played the voice of Serling in this episode during the Jacques Cousteau video playing during the cold open. He did such a flawless job of it that I would absolutely have sworn that it was Serling's voice himself. I asked him why they had him redub the episode rather than just using the original narration, and he explained that they were planning to just show the episode as it was, but the music in the background of the Jacques Cousteau video conflicted with the original soundtrack for this Twilight Zone episode, so they had to redub the entire scene. I love that story because the show figured out a very clever way to get Serling's voice on the show in a non-Twilight Zone capacity. They had an issue, they found an excellent solution, and it was executed truly flawlessly. And I love the esoteric nature of including a clip of a show that's related to, but not from, the Twilight Zone. So definitely hats off to the Twilight Zone producers on that decision. Anyway, there are a couple of nuggets of information that I thought I'd share about these episodes. Overall, I give Among the Untrodden an 8 out of 10 and I give 8 a 6 out of 10, but I'll give the caveat that the 6 out of 10 is because I actually enjoyed it despite its issues. If I were to rate it on how closely it felt it fit in the Twilight Zone, it'd probably be closer to a 3. So, again, one absolutely phenomenal episode. I truly loved it. And the other one, it was fine. It was enjoyable enough, um, but it's those technical aspects and the attention to detail that actually makes that episode shine a bit more for me. So, that's enough for me. Thanks so much, Tom. Hey Tom, Matt here from Anthology Podcast, a podcast where I watch and review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Um, here with some quick thoughts about episode 5 from season 2 of CBS All Access's The Twilight Zone, uh, Among the Untrodden. Um, I really loved this episode. I thought that the um the location of the of the boarding school that the girls were in was really just a breath of fresh air and and different from other episodes in the series and the character dynamics between these two characters Madison and Irene I thought that it was just really spectacularly written um the way that they the way that this episode captures just high school life and being a teenager and being unsure of yourself, this episode to me is all about identity. And I thought that it was a really interesting dynamic to have Madison be this character who has these powers that she's suppressing while she is just this popular girl and, and kind of on top of the 
kind of high school food chain, but she deep down has these powers and she knows that she's not normal. So she wants to reach out and become normal or, or not become normal, but become who she really is with these powers. Whereas Irene is this awkward outcast who's unsure of herself and wants to be accepted. She wants acceptance and she wants to be, she wants to fit in with the cool, cool kids. Even if that means making concessions and changing who she is as a person. Um, I just thought that those, the way that those characters reflect each other was really well done because Madison, granted Madison does conjure Irene in order to have her bring her out of her shell. But I love that Madison is this person who seems to have it all as Jordan Peele says in the closing narration, but wants desperately to just be herself. And she doesn't want to admit that she wants to be herself, but she wants to be herself so much that she has Irene conjured up to bring her out of her shell. Whereas Irene is someone who just wants to fit in and is willing to change who she is in order to fit in. I just thought that those, those two characters were really uh, well done. And the two actresses that play them, I thought that they did a phenomenal job. Both performances I thought were fantastic. Um, like there's a moment where the moment where Madison notices that Irene has tried to do like her makeup and everything. And Madison, uh, offers to help her fix it and everything. It's just such a genuine, such a small scene, but it is the, it is the most cheery and happy. We see Madison in this entire episode because this is her letting her like lowering her shields and letting her, become a friend to this person that she's spending time with. And I just thought that that was a really powerful scene that was done really well, like performed very well from, uh, from the actress playing Madison. I thought that she did a really great job. And then, uh, yeah, the, the lighting and the, the set decoration, like that bathroom, the, the bathroom set was really cool. Like it's an abandoned bathroom and it's covered wall to wall with graffiti and everything. It's just very, dark and, and, and kind of, uh, I don't know, just dark and, and just kind of gross a little bit. And then the scene where they're in, where they're in the hallway and the teacher comes up, I love just how dark that is and how the light is only really only on the girl's faces. And it's just, it's, it's so it's, I don't know. I thought that the cinematography and the, the, um, direction was really great in this episode. Um, overall, yeah, I, I was really floored by it. I'm a huge fan of Stephen King and I felt like this episode from the start, I was thinking that, okay, this is going to be kind of a riff on Carrie by Stephen King. And I'm so happy that it wasn't because like it, it does its own thing. It, it moves, um, over into its own, existence and its own story and everything while there are some like clear influences from Carrie in it like this this episode makes it its own thing and I really loved it for that so those are my thoughts on Among the Untrodden one of my favorite episodes of the season I really really enjoyed it and I can't wait to hear your thoughts and the thoughts of others on this podcast so thank you so much once again for doing this and uh I'll talk to you soon Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Twilight Zone. This is episode 5, season 2, Among the Untrodden. That's my best Tom Elliott impersonation. That's the best I can do. That's all I can do for you. 
Um, my name's Chris Phantom. Tom, thanks for giving me an opportunity to review this episode. I've watched uh, this show for many years as far as the Twilight Zone goes. It goes all the way back, and I've binged the entire second season right now, and I'm loving it so far. Overall, it's really, really good. Um, but this is by far my favorite episode. Among the Untrodden is probably my favorite Twilight. It's amongst one of the best Twilight Zone episodes I've ever seen, ever. So I'm not going to take up too much of your time here. I do want to go over a few things that made this episode so freaking special. First and foremost, big ups to Heather Ann Campbell. She she wrote this episode. Um, it was original. It was done so amazingly well from a cinematography perspective. It's gorgeous. Uh, the girls' bathroom that they were in where they were practicing, you know, her abilities... The bathroom is mystical. The ceiling has these uh, holes in it where the sun is coming in. And it's just gorgeous, just beautiful to watch. Um, but I'll get into the episode and I'll get into Madison talking about her and talking about uh, a few points that I picked up while watching the show. First and foremost, it's so dope how they foreshadowed the entire episode with... Uh, Irene walking in and what she actually represents on the whole scale of the show. You notice that every single conjuring that Madison has done is always due to please her ego, to uh, compliment her, to give her praise, to give her worship. That's just what the point of her conjuring actually really was and came out to be. And there's so many little hints that was shown in this episode that let you know that Irene wasn't real at all. Even when she walks in, you remember the teacher asked, well, Irene, where are you from and what do you like? She just went straight into what she liked. She never talked about where she came from. She just said exploring psychic abilities. And it just really just continued to manifest itself. Even when she grabbed the pencil and tossed it at the back of Irene's head, that pencil was nowhere to be found when she was looking for it at first. The camera panned to her her drawer. It wasn't there. Then it appeared. When she hit her on the back of the head, of course, it started to fizzle away and disappear. And it was really awesome foreshadowing how they showed that um, and what would, to, what would uh, come from there. But just getting into the... Uh, the character of Madison, what she's villainous, she's mean, she's self-absorbed, she's arrogant. Why is she this way? Why is she so, so, uh, you know, caught up into herself? And why does she shut herself off from everyone? And even the friends that she has aren't really her friends. She's not that close to them. And it, and, and it just really made me go back and just think about what it was about her that, uh, even caused Irene to appear and, and, and to be here. So as you look throughout the whole episode, there's so many times in which Madison is uh, being mean to Irene and she wants Irene to go away and stop talking to me and, and she'll embarrass Irene. But Irene serves a purpose. When they started to do the magic and you know looking at what she could do and all that, the purpose needed to be served 100% um, for her to stay around, for her to keep her around. As you saw, she was able to conjure that pencil 
Once it served the purpose, it disappeared. She was able to conjure that key. Once it served the purpose, it disappeared. And you saw that Irene fell off the the top of the uh, of the top floor and fell on her head, and she didn't die. You know because her purpose wasn't yet served yet for Madison. So it started to make me wonder when she conjures up people, what is her end game? What is it that she's looking to do overall? Is she is she is she conjuring Irene to just have a friend? I don't think so. I think she conjured Irene because deep down inside she had a desire, an unconscious desire to learn her powers, learn her mysticism. She conjured someone that could be a friend, but at the same time reveal these abilities that she has. And she's been using these abilities to, you know, be mean to people and things of that nature. Um, so looking at the episode, it just it, it was really amazing to see all of these little signs that pointed towards Madison's ego being stroked and what Madison was choosing to do in order to have these unconscious desires be met. One part that really stood out to me was when she was uh, in the cafeteria near the end and she went and, and saw how they were bullying Irene and her response was automatic was automatically you know shock on her face because she didn't know that it it wasn't clear that she was the one that was controlling the the situation as far as the girls falling out and dying after they embarrassed Irene but it's the fact that her purpose hadn't been fully served yet you know you you know you guys are are uh cutting into the 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 will that I have for me to be completely served and even going back a bit with the science fair project the science fair project that Irene had completely changed she wouldn't talk about the psychic powers she wouldn't talk about any of those abilities or anything like that as far as uh, giving insight on any of it because in doing that it would put Madison's abilities at risk they would look at Irene. They were like, oh, yeah, how, how are you looking in all these powers? And you're around Madison and, and things are happening that we're seeing around Madison. And it would kind of point the, the finger at her a bit. So it made sense for Madison to control Irene unconsciously for her not to even go into showing any of those powers. Um, so the so the project she had would have put her would have had Madison be exposed, obviously. So one thing that I also wanted to talk about was how amazing some of these callbacks were, like the Minx magazine from the Journey Smollett episode with the uh, with the girls singing and that we talked about last week or that you guys reviewed last week. I forget the name of that episode. That was really cool how they showed that Minx magazine. Um, the music, the score was just amazing on this episode. Uh, all the scenes were scored wonderfully and I'm really big on scoring and music because I, I help score independent films too. And the scene where Madison is walking into the cafeteria and airing out that girl's dirty laundry about her staring at her stepdad and all that. The song that was played was top of the world by Kimbra. Wonderful choice. Just amazing scoring. Uh, overall. And I will say I will give this episode a perfect 10. It was a full length movie in under 40 minutes. 
I love what they did. I love the overall story, how it was told. I love the twist at the end. Uh, I didn't see it coming with her uh, being completely uh, conjured at the end, being Irene. Not to give a spoiler here. If you're listening to this, you've probably already seen it. And the last thing I'll say is Madison conjuring up friends or conjuring up people. There's a big reason why she's doing that. I don't understand overall what it is, but she's creating these individuals to come in and open up a part of herself that she unconsciously doesn't know is there. So Irene's purpose was to show her the ways of magic, show her the ways of uh, conjuring and, and all of these powers that she has. What is the purpose of the new girl at the end? What will she do for her outside of being a friend? What other powers are to be revealed? Uh, whatever it is inside Madison that is extremely powerful or whatever uh, mad, uh, magic tricks, whatever it is inside of her that is to be unlocked, it looks like she's conjuring up individuals that will unlock that for her. And I got to touch on the acting. The acting was amazing just completely amazing the casting was amazing uh every role from madison to irene to teachers the stand-ins uh first class but thank you tom thanks for giving me an opportunity to to review this episode uh, i could have gone on a lot longer but um hopefully we get more episodes like this and they can get uh heather and campbell to write a lot of them all right that's all i got thank you so much for this opportunity until next time. I'm going to begin with episode 6 because I do feel it has the most important theme of the whole season. Of the whole world really because it, it highlights the environmental threat the world faces, right? We have uh, global warming and we have uh, depletion of aquatic life with coral bleaching, things of, of that nature. And so it just really puts it under a microscope of uh, that man will really stop at nothing to exchange economic gain for unsustainable uses of natural resources. So bravo to Twilight Zone for tackling the issue and bravo for them doing so in an ambitious, ambitious show because this is a hell of a story you have. A fascinating creature here with this octopus. You have Mr. Rod Serling narrating a aquatic life documentary in the background in the beginning. Like, is that real? <laughs> is that real, or did they splice his voice up? I really want to know. And you know, twist, twist after twist, because you do believe the Chinese team member is. Uh, the conservationist of the group when in reality that's not the case and yeah this I do believe this show can stand alone in a and make a full length film out of it and that's probably why I'll give it like a 7 out of 10 because it though it was a great story and though it tackled a great subject the subject of our time uh it was too much packed into the show in such a small frame. And so had they gone with a longer show for the story, I would have gave it a higher rating. But for now, I'll just give it a 7 out of 10. Uh, episode 5, probably my favorite of the whole season. 
because it did it did such magical things. Uh, I gave it a ten out of ten. It was real clever. It reintroduced topics that all of us probably forgot about that we went through in high school, like peer pressure and uh, bullying and uh, teen angst. And it did so in in a very human way because I think everybody wants to have friends, right? But you don't want to have friends that you have to not be yourself around. And so I think that's what our character was struggling with. Um, Upon a rewatch, I did notice that the made-up friend, uh, she she was talking slower than usual, and I felt that was a hint of that was a hint that she was make believe the whole time. And I just wonder a few things about this show. Like, do the other school members realize that what's going on here? Uh, do they question things? Right? Like, is the whole school made up? Is it just a figment of her imagination? I don't know. So I'm sure these are all things discussed by by Tom and his guests and the fellow fans. So thank you. Hey, what's up, Tom? It's Uncommon NASA here for week three of season two's episodes. Just finished watching eight, uh, which was episode six. Which is a little bit confusing, but um, is what it is. Uh, and of course, uh, among the untrodden uh, was episode five. So I'll get into a little bit quickly on both of those episodes. Um, if you remember last week, I, I kind of went in on a tangent <laughs> and was uh, a, a little bit unhappy, I guess, with the episodes. And it's a weird unhappiness because there's like such a high level uh, of production to these episodes it's just that it's core i feel like they're not hitting what the twilight zone is this season but with that being said you know i don't want to personally like teach people how to dislike the show uh as a musician i've had critics take material of mine and, and essentially just lay out a way to dislike something and i think that that comes from in my case people that really care about what I'm doing. So I appreciate that when I've gotten that. And and I would say I do really care about what is happening with the Twilight Zone, with its legacy, and um, even with the people that are involved. You know, I'm a fan of Jordan Peele, and I'm a fan of a lot of the people involved in the show. So, you know, you do have that passion, and it's not about, like, picking and, and punching through it. It's just about, you know, being honest, and and whether I was recording feedback for you or not, that I think that would be true. You know, just sitting and evaluating it myself, you have to be sort of honest about what you're seeing. If you really take the Twilight Zone and Rod Serling and Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont, you know, all the other writers, um, you know, with the weight that that we do. So, that being said, let's get into the episodes again. I was able to sort of refresh. I watched the first four. On Thursday, uh, I watched the fifth episode on Friday and the sixth episode on Saturday morning. It's now approaching Saturday afternoon. I think I got enough distance, though, to kind of refresh. I, I had said that last time that, like, the ending, and this is not even embellishment, like, the ending of the first episode threw me into a tailspin where I didn't even know what what 
evaluate anymore. And um, or not evaluate is the wrong word because that's not how I'm watching the episodes. I'm not sitting on the edge of my seat ready to judge them. I, if anything, it's the opposite. Where like I came in really open-minded to whatever direction the show wanted to take. I went into episode five really open-minded, and um, I didn't. I, you know, I I thought it was a good episode. I thought it was probably. Of the six, probably my second favorite episode that I saw of them, uh, I thought it was pretty good. I thought um, it definitely had an interesting theme. It definitely made me feel stupid uh, because I thought I was really smart for figuring out the angle that, you know, the friend was doing the moves the whole time uh, or doing the magic or whatever you want to call it, the, the psychokinesis the whole time. And that happened, and I was like, yeah, see, I got it. And then uh, they did the other choice, and I was like, oh, I see. <laughs> that was the sucker. That was the that was the, the thing they, they wanted you to get so that they can give you the twist. Like, you were supposed to get that, not that smart. So that gave me a good laugh. I, I thought it was a good episode. You know, I think it's one of the better episodes if you compare them to season one. No, and I still have my hang-ups about, like, what is the messaging through this? I think this was much closer to a Twilight Zone arc, you know, a traditional original series Twilight Zone arc than maybe any other episode this season. Um, I thought, you know, there was sort of a a person and something happened to them when they came into the Twilight Zone and they were given some level of justice or some level of punishment. And in this, maybe a little bit of both. So I, I think this was the most Twilight Zone non-social address episode that they've done and so to that degree i, I give them some credit I, I i can't really knock too much about it so then we get to eight which i guess there are eight people on the ship but i wasn't counting I, maybe i missed the meaning of eight i don't know i, I don't know why it's called eight um i, I it's, it's a stupid thing to point out but in any case um the octopus looked really dope I actually used to really enjoy eating octopus, particularly in Mediterranean-style salads. Roasted is, is how I really liked it. The oils and all that, you know, and it was sort of like my thing that I had discovered, you know, as a, a little bit older, you know, in my mid-30s. That was sort of a unique, weird thing that not everyone can, can tolerate, and, and I was eating it, and I enjoyed it. And it shows you sort of like the egotism of food to some degree because then I, I had heard a couple people randomly were talking about how intelligent octopuses are they can open jars and count and i'm sure there's a lot more that they can do that we probably don't even understand and uh, i just i stopped eating octopus when i started hearing all those stories I, I just felt like it was unnecessary to like go to that length to to farm and kill like something that was that intelligent that brings up a whole other efficacy of food angle you know, like, well, if you feel that way about octopuses, why don't you feel that way about chickens? You know, I don't think that's what we're here to discuss. But that being said, it, it does give you something to think about. And it, it just, you know, just from my perspective, like, it, it didn't surprise me that they chose an octopus to be this hyper-intelligent creature. Whereas if you maybe don't have the experience eating octopus or hearing about their, their talents and their skills, uh, you might be like why an octopus so there is some some actual real life stuff to it i was really 
amazed at first um and still am impressed um uh, you know i heard like rod serling and i was like really pumped to hear rod serling doing the narration for like the the sort of older like jacques Cousteau or whatever it was like sorts of i've never heard them or you know but i knew that he had done reads for that sort of programming and um at the end of the credits i saw that it was actually an impersonator that they voiced i don't know why they didn't use his original voice but it fooled me i thought it was him so props on that and um you know, also, another thing that I'll point out, another tidbit is, which is sort of good and, and bad for the episode. So, the guy who plays Larry, I think his name was, the, the bald guy with the beard. You know, fairly likable character, but the accent was really strange. And I, at first thought, like, is this guy just really bad at doing a Cajun accent? A Cajun-American accent? Is he supposed to be Southern? Is he Where is he from? And then he's listening to music and he plays Heaven and Earth. And I happen to be, as well as a hip-hop artist, I'm also a DJ and a huge fan of reggae music um, that gets into some ska and, uh, you know, really reggae throughout all the years. I, I know a lot about it. And I had heard the term Heaven and Earth, you know, as a rhythm from, from back in the day. I You know, I'm not like... A wizard so I did have to look up the song and uh, it is by um, the artist uh, Don Drummond and Roland Alfonso who are both um, instrumentalist musicians within the early ska and what you would these days you would retroactively call like the early reggae scene sort of like pre-reggae uh, Jamaican music and um, you know they were part of the ska lights and uh, you know play with Jackie Me Too uh, being part of that group and all that sort of stuff. And I say all that to say, if you're a bald head of that age and you're listening to ska, you're probably English. And that didn't sound at all like an English accent. So I know that Tom doesn't respond directly to these audio feedbacks for time and all that, but I'm super curious Tom, if you have ever heard anyone speak like that in England, or if that accent threw you off, or if you it, what you're hearing from English ears of that accent. Uh, I've been to England once. I was there for nine days when I was there, so I was there for a lengthy amount of time. I wasn't in and out, and I didn't hear anybody that sounded like that. I mean, I heard people that sounded less, air quotes, English, you know, to an American ear, but I didn't hear anybody that spoke like that, so... I just thought that was an interesting tidbit, like the whole connection with, with Jamaican music was, was interesting for me personally. The connection with the octopus was interesting for me personally, just because of my background and knowing about those things. But this episode also did something else that was dismaying to me, is it was only 30 minutes. It was actually shorter than downtime. And what I pointed out about downtime is like, well, if you're not going to give me a huge political message or social strife message like make it short and it'll be interesting and this was the shortest episode by my count of the season and this episode left me like wow I really needed a lot more time I didn't get to know any of the characters I didn't get to know a lot of the background of how they got that project besides little tidbits um you know my wife pointed out that a lot of things were explained through dialogue it was like they were just using the dialogue to kind of describe what was happening and why they were there instead of actually giving you enough time 
to see them go through their motions and, and actually do things. I mean, it starts with, you know, this creature killing the the, the people uh, in the beginning that were experimenting, which was already sort of a... I, I don't want to get into plot holes. and th It's just not worth it, you know, because I, I don't want to be, like, critique -y. I just want to talk about... For me, personally, when I do these feedbacks for the show, like, I just want to get into whether it's Twilight Zone or not. I think that's more important. It, it just... There, there were issues with it. Um, you know, a comparison to Death Ship, but Death Ship was a, a much better piece as far as being put together but you know i i don't know if i said this i think i said this in the flick chat you know jack klugman i just couldn't get over jack klugman being in space he was just too much of an everyman for me and that was like where his talent was and i thought he was the probably the best everyman in hollywood you know uh, for to this day putting him in space he was talented enough to pull it off for an episode but if you had asked me to like watch jack klugman on star trek i probably would have said nah <laughs> like, I don't I don't buy that and Joel McHale as a scientist uh you know I, I just know too much about Joel McHale I know his history and he didn't like look different or like put on a different expression on his face or anything like he was just Joel McHale as himself and you know part of that is you know when you have a personality as strong as Joel McHale that's a credit you know I just couldn't get out of Joel McHale and it didn't kill the episode. I wasn't the problem with the episode. I just, to me, the the biggest problem is just like, what are we, what are we trying to say? And there was some message about like manipulation and humans, whatever. You know, like I, it's not enough um, for me. But it was closer. You know, I mean, as as was uh, among the untrodden, it was closer. They they were tr you, you could see where they were going in terms of making it a Twilight Zone episode they, there was some sort of attempt you know where i didn't feel like that was true in at least three out of four of the first couple episodes there was an attempt in eight to put some kind of like mankind judgment what are we doing as humanity sort of message in there i just didn't think they gave it enough time to really flesh it out correctly or for for any of the other characters i mean they were all disposable i mean the diver and the bald guy and, you know, even the the, the woman that was uh, sort of working with Joe McHale closely. I don't remember her role on the ship. I, that just goes to show you, like, I don't know what her role was. I have no idea what she did besides be a, a female character to play off of a male lead. I don't, I don't know. I don't even know what Joe McHale's job was on the ship. Was he the captain? It seemed like people were just doing things regardless of whether he said so or not, you know? So, like... I don't even know what any of their roles were. I don't quite, you know, besides the guy who was the diver, where they directly said, like, you're our best diver that's left on the ship. I don't know what any of the other people's roles really were or what they did. I guess the Asian woman was described as a, as an observer, but that, what does that mean? Like, in that sort of situation, they're all observing science. So, it, it was a lot going on. So, let's get to some quick ratings and I can get out of here, but... um I would say, you know, in talking about Among the Untrodden, I've kind of talked it up a little bit, so I'll put it on an even platform with what I said about downtime. Uh, I'll put it at a 7. And um, 8, um, I guess I'll put it as a 6. You know, I, everything I've rated has been a 5, 6, or 7, and unfortunately that sort of shows 
the overall of how I feel about it. You know, I, I feel like I would be unnecessarily cruel or blind to the achievement of what the show is if I started throwing out threes and fours as ratings for episodes. But I also feel like I'd be being disingenuous if I started throwing out eights and nines and tens. So that is what it is. You know, uh, maybe toward the end, you know, I think all of us will sort of get into the difference between watching them week to week and binging them together and some of the wider arc stuff about what's different from season one to season two. But I'll leave that there and, uh, you know, we'll catch up next week. See ya. Oh, yeah. Octopus. Octo. Eight. I do get it now. Took me I had to stop and re-record this. I get it. I get it. Hey NASA, just to answer your question. Um your question about the gentleman with the bald head um and his accent. He doesn't sound British to me or English. And I kinda I didn't really notice his accent that much because I think coming from England and with the US being such a big place with such a wide range of accents. You watch stuff sometimes and I think I'm pretty good. You know, I can say, oh yeah, that person's from the South. That's a New York accent. But then there's a whole ton of other stuff where it's just like, it's an American accent. And I kind of just thought that of this guy. I thought he was American, um, but who knows? So I looked up the actor and he is a guy called Tim Armstrong, I think, and he hasn't got a whole load of credits. He's done a lot of um, like music for stuff, soundtracks and things, and he actually had a, a part in an episode of The X-Files, so I guess maybe Glenn Morgan liked him and brought him back for this. You know, he's a writer, director, he seems to do a lot of stuff. If I've got the right guy, because, you know, he doesn't really look the same on his imdb but then there are pictures on there that make it look like it is him and some of the pictures he is in a scar type looking band so i don't know it says he's from albany california um and again it's a it's an accent that i probably wouldn't recognize so sorry i can't give you a definitive on that one man but thanks for the question anyway catch you next week <laughs>